If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn in it. We're in Isaiah this morning. And um, for those of you who are familiar with that book, you're like, that's huge. You're right, Isaiah's huge. We're not preaching through the whole book, don't worry. Um, just a few verses in chapter 42. So uh, turn there to Isaiah 42. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the text is behind me. Or it's in your bulletin, which would be even better, because that way you can, you can stay with it. But it's going to be good to have it in front of you. So, this is the second week, fruit snack, all right, this is the second week of our series on generosity, right? And last week, we said two things. One, we said that if this is your first time in, in church and you showed up, it probably meant that every suspicion you had about church was right, because we were preaching about money for the next eight weeks. And then we pulled a little bait and switch, because that passage wasn't really about money, but that's why we did it. Because the entire uh, approach of this series is that generosity, the idea of giving, what we do with our money, how the gospel, how Jesus impacts our money, has less to do with our money and more to do with our hearts. Has less to do with, um, with, with kind of the, the checks we write and more to do with the affections that we have. And so last week we talked about who you were for, who you were made for, right? You remember that? We were in Colossians talked about the fact that we were made by and for God. And because we were made by and for God, he is the one that we will find our satisfaction in, not all these other things that we tend to run to, tend to, tend to uh, try and gather to ourselves. This week, once again, not about money. Look, this is great, right? Maybe we can get through the whole series like that. Probably not, all right? This week, though, we look to what our purpose here is. So if you have your place in Isaiah 42, our habit here is to stand. So stand in honor of God's word, please. If you can. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 9. It's God's word for us. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word given so that you and I would flourish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, what we're going to be talking about today is not something that we normally think about, at least for most of us. Because our, our purpose here is oftentimes summed up in, um, in our vocation, uh, maybe even just not even thinking about it, just trying to get through day to day or to the next break. And so maybe it's a good time as we're on a holiday weekend to, to pray about this and to think about this and to hear what it is that you've called us to be and why we are here in the first place. But for that to happen, Spirit, you're gonna to have to come and, and open our hearts and our eyes and our ears that we would see Jesus, hear from him and receive him. Don't let us grow hard and cold. Instead, Lord, soften us. Let us be malleable in your hands. Give us faith to believe. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So I became a Christian in college. I know that's opposite of what seems like the trend is, what most people do. But uh, I, became a, I became a Christian my freshman year of college. Um, that's where God just apparently wanted to rescue me from myself. 
And as you can imagine, or maybe you don't have to because you just remember it, or currently experience it, maybe you're currently experiencing it, being a Christian in college meant you had the stakes raised on the question, what am I going to do with my life? Right? Every, every one of us has that question. Maybe you have that in high school, or maybe you like, maybe you really had your stuff together and, and had your direction set really early. You had it like middle school, maybe in elementary school. But most of us are struggling with that question even as we're in college. And, and so the, the question, what, what do I want to do with my life, became for Christians, what is God's will for my life? Remember that? It's like the exact same question but changed ever so slightly. So that the answer is not what you decide, but what you discover, right? It's not what you want. It's, you kind of are able to pawn it off to some extent. It's, oh, this is what God wants from me. I know this will work as if like, that's the way things happen. Like God, God kind of gives you a road sign, right? And so as, as Christians in, in, in college, I remember folks being obsessed with this. They were like reading their Bibles, hoping that some obscure passage in Habakkuk would, would let them know whether to go on the mission field or grad school or ask so-and-so to marry. I'm like, I know it's in here. It's right here. I know that says that the watchman is on the wall of Israel, but I'm pretty sure it means. Here's what I'm guessing though. Like I said in, in my prayer, most of us have long ago left that question behind. Because the thought of God's will for us doesn't much cross our minds anymore. It's, it's as if what mattered in that question had to do with our jobs. Or maybe our spouse. It's as if what, what, what mattered was something of career. But what if it was more than that? See, last week we looked at the question of lordship. But if God is Lord, if he is the one by and for whom you were made then he is the boss and what he wants for us is really, really important. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what he wants for us. So as always, there's an outline if you want to take notes. If not, don't worry about it. Let's dig into this a little bit. First, some context. So Isaiah 42, especially five through nine, is the first of, for you Bible nerds, it's the first of what scholars call the servant songs of Isaiah. And what that means is there's several different places. So you have this in uh, 42, then you have, again, in chapter 49, then in 50, and then uh, 52, the latter part of 52 into the first part of 53. And and what they are, are they, they are songs about this this identity of the servant. And, and generally in your Bibles, they'll capitalize that. This is my servant who I am uphold, blah, blah, blah. Now, interesting, the earliest interpreters of this passage and all of these passages understood these songs to be about Israel. To be about Israel, to be about God's people. Now, if you've been in church a while, that's just going to sound silly because when you hear Isaiah 53, which you generally do right around Easter time, right? Right before Easter time, you hear Isaiah 53 and you go, well, that's Jesus. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. But listen, the, real, the reason that the earliest interpreters thought that this was about God's people is because they were reading their Bibles. Now, uh, some of you have heard me say this a bazillion times, but, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, just in case. By nature, all of us are turned away from God. The scriptures are very clear on that, that, that all of us, by nature, since uh, the first sin by, our first, uh, the, by the first family, that, that, that we've kind of turned away from God. And when I say that, most of us think, whether you are uh, a Christian or not, whether you've been in church your whole life or maybe you've 
been in church and walked away from it and coming back, or maybe you just never been. Most of us, when we say that we're turned away from God, we think good, bad, right? Turned away means bad. And so some of us, we're like, well, I'm pretty good, so I don't see that as being turned away. But see, the Bible doesn't really talk good, bad. The way it talks and thinks is in terms of independent and dependent. That we're made for dependence on God, but now we seek our own independence. Some of us do that morally, wanting a good status, and we can do that on our own. Some of us do that more immorally, right? But the problem's the same. So ultimately, when it comes to our standing before God, the question isn't, am I a good person? The question is, am I depending on him for everything, okay? So thus, all of us, by nature, are kind of bent away from him, trying for our own independence. Now, God promised to make things right, and he began to work that out through this dude named Abraham. And he promised to deal through Abraham and his family with our sin and to make the world right. So when this passage is being read about God's people, it's simply in line with the rest of the Bible. Because that's Abraham's family. We're like, okay, this is working out the way it's supposed to work out. Now some of you are like, again, wait Rick, I, I, you know, I've been in church for a while and I've heard preachers preach on this and this is about Jesus. Like I said, I'll get to that. But I just want you to start off with what this is and what this has to do with us, okay? Now, let's get into the passage itself. Let's look down first, these first few verses as we deal with God's credentials. Look down at verse five. So there are three things going on in this first verse, okay? First off, the first deals with how God names himself. And we just got done with a whole series on the Psalms of Ascent, so I'm about to say something that you are really tired of hearing. But it's in here, I just gotta talk about it, okay? He calls himself the Lord, okay? God, the Lord. Now, that is two different words. The word God, there are a bunch of ways to say the word God in the Old Testament. El, Elohim, there's a bunch of different ones, okay? But the word Lord is one particular word. There are, in the ancient world, you could say God and it's kind of generic, like we do, right? A lot of times we say God and we mean something fairly generic, do we not? Because for Christians, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we mean when we say God, but when a deist says God, they mean something different. Certainly when a Muslim says God, they, say, they mean something different. Like, there's a whole, Allah is a very different person than, than the Christian God. So what, is it, what does this mean? Well, he, he clarifies, he's the Lord. The Lord is not a generic term. That is his covenant name. That is the name he gave to his people. And it brings with it a story. And that story is of God's promises to make the world right. His promise to rescue. To deal with our sin, our brokenness, our independence from him. So first and foremost, he says, I am God. And in case you're confused, the Lord. I am, the, I am Yahweh, your God. The second is he says, he is the creator. Look at that. He says, who created the heavens and stretched them out? He created the heavens and the earth. He's the Lord. He's the creator Lord. Okay. We talked a lot about that last week. I'll let you go back and listen to that. But lastly, not only is he creator, he's also the sustainer, right? Created the heavens, stretched them out, spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people and spirit who, uh, uh, to those who walk in it. In other words, he doesn't, again, like we said last week, he doesn't just make things and let them go. He is the creator and he is the one who maintains the world. It's not maintained by forces of, of just science and all this stuff. It's maintained by him. He is the one who gives breath. In other words, 
all of us are, in, are dependent creatures. He is not, but we are. Now, I know this seems really redundant for him to say all these things, but it's all very specific. Because this means that the one who is issuing this call is not one God among many. He's not one God amongst a bunch of pantheons. He's not a lesser deity who's only over his people. In other words, you can't get around this with the idea of parochialism. Well, he's God to Israel, but he's not God to everybody else. He's, he's God to this people, but not this people. No, he's the one who created everything. He's the one who sustains everything. There is no one higher than him. He'll say that a little later. The basis of this call that we're about to, about to get to comes from this assertion. It is why he can make it. Now, like I said, some of you are thinking right now, like, Rick, you already talked about this. You did this last week. You preached long enough. Can you not do the, re- the repeat? Okay, I get it. I know, and I'm, I'm very happy that you noticed that, so thank you for noticing. The reality is, though, like I said last week, if we're going to talk about who we are, what our purpose is, and then eventually what that, how that impacts our money, we first have to come back to the idea of God's lordship. Because God makes sure that we understand who he is before he issues a call. So that, he, so that we're very clear that he has the right to say it. And I know that we have a hard time with this. Right? You and I, we love our autonomy. We love it. We love our rights. What, has, what, what right does anyone have to tell me to do anything? Right? Well, this is something that we all have to wrestle with and ultimately it destroys our pride because we like to think of ourselves as self-authenticating, self-defining, and self-sufficient, right? I get to declare who I am. That's all bound up in my self-esteem, right? We think of ourselves as the center of the universe and because of that, we have the right to govern ourselves. No one can tell us what to do with ourselves unless, of course, they use some form of coercion, violence, taxation, you know, something like that. This is why this lordship question is so important. Because you see, the lordship of God, the God of the Bible, is not based on what you believe. If that were the case, then he would just be the God of those of us in this room who actually believe in the Bible. Like believe in Jesus, trust in him. And everyone else can go, yeah, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Right? But it's not based on what we believe. And if that were the case, he would have just said, hey, I'm God the Lord. Now listen up. Also, if that were the case, his lordship would only extend to our faith. His claim on our lives would simply be because of our religious convictions. But he goes beyond that to how he creates. And that is because the one who creates a thing is able to tell what the purpose of that thing is. Right? Like, ah, great example. I know that most of us, especially the youngins in the room, their first experience with the Little Mermaid was with the, no, there wasn't a live action one. That's great. So we're still in the cartoon. Awesome. Okay, you remember when Ariel's in the cave and she's got her cave of wonders and flippery gibbets and what's its nots? And she takes out the fork, right? And what's the fork for? Thank you. It's to curl your hair. And she does it at the table, right? She's curling her hair. Now, can you curl your hair with a fork? Yes, you can. Is it what it was made for? No. Are there better things to curl your hair with, ladies? Yes, okay? In other words, the person who makes the thing is able to determine what it is that that thing is actually for, okay? 
Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Rick, I'm not a thing. I'm a person. I get that. But God still has the right as creator to tell us what we are to do. And if that weren't enough, he moves on to sustainer. Here's where that's a big deal. Our dependence on God did not begin or end with, it did begin, but it did not end with our creation. We still owe him our existence. In other words, the Bible teaches that you and I not only owe God our, our right, you, that, that psalm, he formed us in our mother's wombs. It's not just that. It's that you owe him that breath you just took. And that one. And that one. Like all of them come from him. We owe him our existence. Now, I know that some of us in this room aren't even sure if you believe in God. And I, I get that. But think of it this way. Have you heard of these guys? I hope nobody in here is one of these guys. If you are, just come talk to me later and you can get angry with me. Have you heard of these, of these guys called sovereign citizens? Right? Now listen, I know some of us in this room kind of lean more towards that into the spectrum. But listen, um, these, some of these, these guys called sovereign citizens, maybe you haven't. Basically, they don't acknowledge the government's authority over them. Do you know how much that, their acknowledgement of that authority matters in court? None. It matters nada. Not at all. So some of us may think, may even be thinking, maybe you thought in the last four years, but some of us are thinking after an election that didn't go the way we want, this isn't my, this isn't my president. But in reality, if you live into that, we call that Rebellion. Right? If you actually live into that reality, it's not that somehow you, you get to determine your president as opposed to someone else's, your governor as opposed to someone else's. It's like there is the authority and then there's us. We may not like it, but it doesn't change what is. Right? God is the Lord who creates and sustains us and he is the one who can tell us what's up. All right? All right, enough hammering on that. Let's get to our calling. Look down at verses six to seven. He repeats it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now stop there. What does this mean? Righteousness is a really churchy word. Most of us, if, we, if we're familiar with it at all, when we use it, we think of goodness. It can mean that. Uh, but most often in the Bible, what righteousness means is faithfulness to a promise. I have called you in righteousness means I have called you according to my faithfulness to my promise. And the promise that he's talking about is the promise to rescue the world. Okay, that's important. So clue into that. I have called you according to my faithful promise, my faithfulness to my promise to rescue the world. Next he says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. Which is super important because it's, it's saying that God is not calling us to something and leaving it, leaving it to independence from him. Of course he's not. That's the problem with us. So God's not calling us to that. He's saying to take you by the hand is about leading you. Keeping, that word keep means to guard. It doesn't just mean to like, I'm holding your hand really tight. It means I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm going to lead you to where you're supposed to go. And I'm keeping you. I'm the one who's providing uh, defense for you. And this call that he's about to give is a demonstration of his faithfulness to his promise promise that will be accomplished because he is working through his servant okay still with me don't worry this is i love this passage this is gonna it's gonna blow your mind here in a second then he says i will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations this is so good let's start in the middle 
Uh, the idea of a covenant for the people is a little confusing. So let me, let me explain that. Um, the covenant he's talking about, theologically, if you're a theolo- theology nut, we call the, th- the covenant of grace. Okay? That is the promise that God made back in Genesis 3 to make the world right and to deal with our sin. When he says the peoples, he means the world. Ah, now listen, this is important. When God talks about the peoples or the nations, there's a word for that in, in Hebrew. It's called goyim. Maybe you've heard of that, like, especially if you had Jewish friends growing up. I know we're in the valley, so like, not many of us had that. I didn't come from the valley, so I had Jewish friends going up, and, and I was called goy all the time, right? Because I'm a Gentile. That's those who are not Jewish. Are you listening? I have given you as a covenant to the peoples means I have given you as a covenant to those who aren't my people. It is always in the scriptures, and and again, he says, you're a light to the nations. Always in the scriptures, peoples and nations has to do with the wider world, not the religious community. You with me? This is important. I have given you as as a covenant to those people that are not my people and a light to the nations that are not my nation. God is saying, Your purpose is to be a gift to the world in answer to my promise to redeem. And some of you are like, well, of course, it's talking about Jesus. I don't, stay with me, okay, get with me. Then he explains it more, to open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners. This is important because it it helps to define how the Bible understands our problem. Now, some of us were raised in church traditions where we took that very, 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 very literally, right? And generally, those that take it extremely literally harp on one of those two groups. If it's the blind, it's like, see, Jesus has come to heal all your illnesses and all your infirmities. Or, you see, Jesus has come to deal with all of our social injustices. Right? Take out the prisoners, deal with the blind eyes. The problem with that is that prophecy in general, and especially in Isaiah, there's, there's more going on here than just that. Does it have to do with the fact that Jesus has come or, or that God's work in the world to heal the world will also deal with bro- physical brokenness? No, it will. Will it deal with social injustice? Yes, it will. Of course it will. However, this gets more to what the Bible says our problem is. See, most people who I meet who aren't Christians kind of assume that what God wants is for us to be good and the Bible gives some helpful suggestions for that, Right? Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. You're like, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it, right? Actually, it's not. It's not at all. Right? Here the problem is not, we're just not a little good and we need a little, some suggestions. The problem is blindness and imprisonment. So let me ask you something. Can you fix blindness? Does that just need a little effort to get over? Like, just strain your eyes harder. Does that work? If you're in prison, it's like just, I mean, unless you're like dude from Shawshank. Is it like, you know, I can just walk out of here whenever I want. No. The whole point of these two images are you're stuck. If you're blind, there is no hope for sight. And in the ancient world, unlike today, if you're in prison, you will probably die there. Because they're not feeding you. They're not taking care of you. You're in a cave with a, with a door on the front. There you go. There you sit, probably in shackles with your your wrists and your, and your ankles tied together or, or connected. That's your prison. 
You're not going to live. There's no hope for you. And that's the point. Because we are turned away from God, we are blind and imprisoned in our sin, but God is faithful to his promise. He's seeking to rescue those blind to their need. He's seeking to rescue those who are imprisoned in their sin and the judgment from that. But what's more, he has decided he is going to use his people to do that. Now, here's the problem. Israel failed. Right? We know this. Like some of you have read the Bible. You, you, you know that at the end of the day, the problem at the end of the Old Testament is that God's people were not any better than the nations. In fact, in many ways, they were worse. Like, you know, we've read the story, right? Abraham's family messed it up. And they failed because they were as imprisoned and as blind as everyone else. But this is where Jesus comes in. You ever wonder why Jesus did some of the weird things he did? You ever, oh, here's, here's a good one. You ever wonder why he went out into the middle of the desert to the Jordan River to be baptized and then went from there to spend 40 days hanging out in the desert with no food or water? You're like, yeah, I don't get that. You know who else didn't get that? Any of the people that watched him do it. He went out and got baptized by John and John was like, what are you doing? This isn't for you. You don't need repentance. Just a little insight. What Jesus was doing was reenacting the story of Israel. You know who else went through the waters of the Jordan and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Israel did. Before they then went into the land and began taking it for God. And so that's what Jesus did. He went through the Jordan like they did. He crossed through the Jordan, went through the waters, went out into the wilderness, was tested just like Israel was to take things into their own hands, but succeeded, and then came into the land and began pushing out the armies of darkness. What Jesus was doing is saying, there is a true Israel. It's me. Yes, because the family of Abraham couldn't do it, God became part of the family of Abraham to get it done. So Jesus is the faithful and true Israel. He is the answer to God's covenant to rescue humanity by living the life that we couldn't, dying like we wouldn't in our place, bearing God's judgment for sin. It is the the work of Jesus applied by the Holy Spirit that opens blind eyes. It is the work of Jesus that sets free those imprisoned. The Spirit opens our eyes to our need and he renews our hearts so that we can, we can literally be delivered out of our sin. Jesus is the evidence of God's faithfulness to our promise, or to God's promise. But that's not the end of it. If we leave it there, what, what does that have to do with us? Right? We're like, well, here was, the, here was the reality. God called his people to do this. They failed. Don't worry, Jesus did it, so trust in Jesus. We could end there. Wouldn't be a bad sermon, actually. Some of you would be like, thank you. We're done. That's good. But that's not where it stops. Because if you're a Christian this morning, you are part of Christ's body. You are in Christ. And so this call that's right here is your call. This is why Jesus says to his people, you are the light of the world, right? You are the light of the world. You are a light to the nations, a city set on a hill. And that's right from here. That's right from this passage. This is so important, so listen close. Christian, 
You are God's gift to the world, but not in the way that you normally think it, right? I know some of you really wrestle with that. Like, I know. Thank you, Rick, for noticing. I'm good. This is great. No, no, you are God's gift to the world, but not in that way. You're a specific gift. You are a specific gift to be an agent of redemption in the world through his gospel, which means that your purpose, look at me, I need everybody's eyes. Christians, your purpose is not for you. Your purpose isn't even for your community of faith. Ooh. Your purpose is for the world. Jesus is the true Israel, but now we are joined to him so that we are too. And so our purpose is to be the gift of God for the world so that the world might have light and be freed from their bondage to sin and death. Okay, so does that mean, is Rick saying that we all have to quit our jobs and be missionaries? No. Listen, here's where this passage came into such, uh, such high definition for me. A number of years ago, my first call, I was working at Tabernacle PCA in Waynesboro. We supported this, um, this, this woman um, who was, I won't say her name, but she was serving as a missionary in a closed country in the Middle East, like the most closed country in the Middle East you could think of. This whole team of, and this was, you know, obviously post 9-11, all this stuff. And there was, a, there was a team of missionaries from the PCA there in that town. And she came, she was on home assignment. She came and she talked about what it is that she did. And we all sat in our Sunday school and, and we, we listened to her. And, and she said, well, what I do is I have a job. I have a job at an English-speaking newspaper, so I write articles. And then I'm trying to make relationships with my neighbors, my friends, looking for opportunities to um, talk to them about Jesus. And I went, isn't, isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? She's doing it over there. We're, we're doing it here. We call her a missionary. And we call us what? She is a missionary. And so are you. You just may not realize it. You don't have to quit your job. You are a missionary. You are missionaries no matter where you work, live, or play. God has, and not because you made a decision to do it. You are that because God has made a decision that you will do it. That is your call, Christian. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about this. You don't have to worry about this at all. If you are, this is your call, God has given you as a gift to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Kids, he's given you as a gift to your friends in school. Listen, listen, this will change your life if you let it. When I was in college, the question was basically, what job, job does God want me to have? But his actual calling of his people is so much bigger than a job. Do you realize that you can serve God no matter what profession you're in when Paul gives this is not my sermon sorry but when Paul gives his call for us to to glorify him in what we do do you realize that he doesn't care what you do I mean I'm not saying that we have this thing in our in our world especially in the Christian world that we're supposed to find that one thing right that one thing 
And it'll give me warm fuzzies when I do it. It'll be awesome. Now listen, you should go and do what it is that, that you are, are made to do. But there's lots of options for what you're made to do. You're like, Rick, well, you get up there and, and talk really loud at people. I could do that in a lot of different things, a lot of different places. That's my only marketable skill, but I do have that, okay? But you can do those kind of things in a lot of different places. The point is, who are you doing it for, not what are you doing? Are you doing it for your glory or for his? That's how you serve God in your career. It's, his calling is supra-career. It's about how you view yourself no matter where you are. And this will transform how you view your neighborhood. It will transform how you view your school. It will transform where your energies go. God has given you as a gift to those around you so that they might come to know him. You are a covenant to the peoples. Which means that all that we are is committed to that purpose. Now, Lastly, I want to talk about the consequence. Okay? Look down at verses 8 and 9. And it seems a little out of place, right? You look at verses 8 and 9, you're like, why is this all here? Because it, it really isn't, but it seems like it. Verse 8 is the third time where God calls himself the Lord in this passage, right? So we're in, we're in verses 5 through 9. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 verses, three times he calls himself the Lord probably is important. This entire passage is inundated with God, with the concept of God being the promise-making and promise-keeping Lord. But then he says, my glory I give to no other, my praise I will not give to carved idols. Okay, what does that mean? It means that the purpose of all of this is for God's glory. Now, normally when we hear this, especially if we're not familiar with it, it sounds like God is really insecure Right? And he kind of made everyone to kind of talk him up. We know what this is like because some of us do this, right? We go into a room and we give our resume to everyone we're talking to, hoping that they'll like, yes, you're awesome. Keep going. Yeah, you're great. And so we think, oh, that must be what God is doing. But notice what he says. He says, my glory. Not Glory, I'm not, I'm not going to give glory to any other or, or praise to carve idols or I'm not going to let them get glory. I, he says it's my glory. The assumption here is that you and I will give glory to something. And glory just simply means making something ultimate. Like we are going to give that to something. It will either go to God or it will be to what we have made with our own hands. And God is saying that glory I designed to come to me. Now, some of us are probably still thinking that's pretty egotistical. Um, there, was a, there was a friend of mine who recently went to go be with the Lord a few years ago. Uh, really good man. And uh, he had something, and he used to, we used to go out to lunch, and he used to kind of correct me all the time on this. But he called it the ego to ability ratio. He knew something about this. He was a Harvard MBA, so, you know, he knew about egos, definitely. But he also knew a thing or two about ability and what that meant, what he meant by that, was that egotism and arrogance happen when our ego outpaces our ability to do something. Which is to say, it's not wrong to say that you're good at something. If it's true, right? I mean, like, it's not wrong to say that. Like, no, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. And it isn't wrong for someone else to notice that you're good at something when you are. The problem is not thinking highly of yourself. The problem is thinking 
too highly of yourself. But God can't do that. It's impossible for God to think too highly of himself. He is actually worthy of the praise of all creation. Because we exist for that. And so what is more, if if we're to take the words of Jesus seriously, then we're to understand that in the Christian concept of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all giving glory to one another. Father glorifies the Son and the Spirit. The Son comes to glorify the Father and, and, and show off the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to shine a light on both the Father and the Son. Which means that God is not some insecure dude who makes us so that he's going to feel important. He is glorious. He calls us to join in the glory that he is due. Okay? Now, let's wrap this up with getting the point. Okay? Because some of us right now are like, okay, so God calls me to go out. Gives me the world so that he will get more glory. Well, yes and no. Let me point out something to you. If you've got your bulletin out, you've got your Bible out, I want you to look real quick and I want you to note who does all of the action in this passage. Go ahead. You can look. I have called. I will take and keep. I will give you. God is laying out a call for us, but this passage is very clear that he is the one who is doing the work. Can you open blind eyes? Let me ask you something, because some of you have done this. You've gotten into arguments with family or friends about Jesus and all this stuff. How, what's your track record? How many people have you argued in the kingdom? You doing all right with that? I'm not. I lose that one every time. Right? You can't open blind eyes. You can't bring people out of bondage of their sin. And this is why God is the one who gets all the glory. Because God is the one who's doing all the work. He just tells us to go. I use this illustration all the time, but it's true. And most of you have little kids, so you know this is true. When your kids come out to help you with the chores, they're not helping you, right? I mean, mine are. They're now teenagers. Truth be told, it's the, it's the promised land, baby. Just come, just wait, it's coming. It's coming. Whew, it's a good time. But like when they were little, when they were little, my, my boys would want to come help me lift log, like lift, uh, you know, different things in the yard. And I remember lifting boards with them. They wanted to help and they're thinking they're strong. They didn't have any of that board, but they were with me. They were with me and in their minds, I was helping dad. I could have gotten that job done way faster, frankly, without them. But the point was they were with me. That's what this is about. God is the one doing the work. We are simply called to go. And that means that there is freedom in this. You and I can't control outcomes. And he isn't expecting us to. We depend on him even as we're being given a gift. Right? Uh, pastor and author, a guy by the name of John Piper, famously opened his book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad with this line. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And that is, that's it. When Jesus comes to right the world finally and fully, being on mission in this way, being a covenant to the peoples won't exist. Because the peoples won't exist. In the sense of like, there won't be those that don't follow, trust, and love Jesus. There will be no blind, no one in prison. There will only be worship of God. And so our goal now is to see that worship spread because he is worthy of it. 
mean, think with me. What kind of God continues to show his kindness towards those who disregard him? What kind of God rescues rebels? What kind of God forgives us by suffering judgment in our place? He is worthy, and so our purpose is to see his worship, which is the declaration of his worth, spread. And that doesn't just mean singing, (laughs) okay? It doesn't just mean singing. It means worship in our families, as our marriages reflect the long-suffering of God with one another. And his delight in his people. It means worship in our vocations as we work. Not just with excellence. I mean with excellence. It's hard to glorify God with your work if you're not at least giving him some effort, right? But it doesn't just mean with excellence. It means with a different standard altogether. Seeking the others flourishing and not just profit. It means worship through our communities as we seek to see our neighborhoods and schools and cities function according to God's kingdom. Not some other ideology. And that kind of thing happens as transformed people with transformed lives give those lives, give their time, give their talent, give their resources to see other people transformed. And that's what this series is about. It's about realigning our priorities to see that we are a gift to the city, to the county, to our communities so that God will receive the glory that he is due here. Would you pray with me? Jesus, that is so hard for us. It's so hard for us because we are just dead set on living for ourselves. We are dead set on having our time, our talents, and our resources line up to our purposes for our lives and not yours. So we ask, oh God, that you would realign us Because before we can even get to where we're at with our money, first we have to understand you as Lord. And so for those here who who haven't seen that, I, I ask that you would work in their hearts right now to give them that faith. And then we need to see that you are the one who has called us to be a gift to the world. And so I would more than guarantee that most of us just aren't really there yet. And so I ask that you would give us that kind of faith. And then Lord, I ask that you would send us into the world so that we might be a light to those that are in darkness. Not just with our lives, but also with our words. We ask you to do this for the glory that you're due to the praise of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we ask this. Amen.